The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Support for this show comes from the Divine Intelligence Institute, committed to awakening the God within. Make God a presence inside that you can activate rather than a person up in the sky that you worship. Find out your spiritual IQ at divineintelligenceinstitute.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Dr. Jessica Nudek-Zitter, is an expert on the medical experience of death and dying. She attended Stanford University and Case Western Reserve Medical Schools and completed her residency in internal medicine at the Brigham uh, and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Zitter is a double boarded uh, in the two specialties of pulmonary critical care medicine and palliative care medicine, She, which I, I understand is actually not the normal thing to do. You can tell us about that. She writes for the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Pacific Standard, The Atlantic, and, and the Journal of Palliative Medicine. She's featured in the movie Extremis, an Oscar-nominated documentary about end-of-life decision-making in an ICU. A review of her new book, Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life, appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Dr. Zitter, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure, Jessica. As I was getting ready for this conversation, I went back to a book that I just loved long time ago. It was written four decades ago. Uh, Ernest Becker's Death, uh, Denial of Death. Ernest Becker's book is called Denial of Death. He opens his book with this. The main thesis of this book is that the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity. Activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny of man. So granted that the book was written 44 years ago and nobody in the right mind would say the destiny of man anymore, <laughs> you know, we'd be a little more sensitive. How, how do you think, just you know, having heard that, how, how do you think Dr. Becker's thinking uh, jibes or is in conflict with your own? Oh, I think it is completely uh, apropos today. Um, you know, I see this, what I call the fantasy of perpetual life playing out uh, every day in the intensive care unit. And, you know, if you look back into Greek mythology, this is something that's been, you know, the, the myth of Eos and Tithonus, which was, the Eos was the, the goddess who tried to get perpetual life for her lover and was granted perpetual life for Tithonus by Zeus, but realized after she had gotten this request granted that, in fact, she should have asked for perpetual health. And so, you know, unfortunately, uh, she spent 
the rest of her, I'm probably still spending it, time taking care of an aging um, uh, and feeble-minded and feeble-bodied Tithonus. Um, and I see that playing out in the intensive care unit um, a lot. I don't, you know, I think it's it's almost something that that doctors and patients share and maybe we almost collude in, 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 in working around this fear of death by really busying ourselves, all of us with, you know, another procedure, another treatment, another technology, um, in this hope that we can keep, keep the body alive. So I yeah. see it a lot. All right. So, so here's, here's something our, our listeners should take, uh, pay close attention to when you're talking to a God, just remember that the God is very literal so you have to make your request very specific, <laughs> especially if you're talking to Zeus. You know, right. when when you, you when my dad was dying a couple of years ago, um, we had him in a hospice, and it was palliative care. There was no way he wanted any more cancer treatment, and it was just he was ready to go. He's 89; he was done, and he asked as best we could understand him. He didn't want to eat anymore, and yet. What we found was the nurses in the in the hospice, they kept feeding him anyway. Mm. And you could see they would try to feed him and he couldn't swallow. He just it was an, it was embarrassing for him. Mm. But they couldn't help themselves. Is do you get a sense that I, I don't want to make it negative that okay, doctors, nurses, they just want to keep you alive. They don't care. I get the, the sense that it, it in some cases it just goes against their very being that they're there to make you live, uh, not, you know, and, and, and dying just is an insult. Very well put. I've seen that phenomenon in so many different ways. I mean, it, you, you see it with food, for sure. Um, and, you know, I, I, would, I would say that pretty much every culture I've ever cared for uh, has food as an expression of love or sees food as an expression of love. And it, you know, I wrote a piece actually called Choked by Love, um, I believe in the New York Times. And it is about, it's a story of a young man who um, wanted to feed his mother and she was a, an elderly Chinese woman. And she was very, very close to death and very sick. And when I came into the room, he was feeding her this cafeteria issue tuna fish sandwich. He was sort of cutting off tiny little pieces like she was a little bird and he would feed it to her. And you could just see that she was just not, you know, she was doing it for him, but she felt there was nothing that she wanted to do less than to eat food. And I, he spoke Cantonese and I couldn't communicate to him. I was trying to say, stop, you know, stop feeding her. I don't think it's a good idea. And, and I said, one minute, I'll, you know, get, give that, that universal sign of I'll be right back. And I ran out to get a translator and uh, heard overhead on the speaker, you know, code blue, ninth floor. And um, it turns out that she had aspirated that sandwich um, and died. And wow. I really, you know, think that that, that desire to feed is it's an expression of love. And what I found is that if I take the time to explain this phenomenon, that food can actually be toxic to a dying body. Um, if I can explain that to people, they understand it. And then they figure out other ways to demonstrate their love. But like everything else in this business and certainly around the end of life, 
there's such a lack of knowledge and communication, as you would expect, because most people don't have a lot of experience with death and dying. Um, and we, we really do need our, those tendencies of, of, of demonstrating love to be, you know, to be, to be sort of geared towards something that's more productive. And I think with a little bit of knowledge and information, uh, families can do that and it can be very, very helpful. Um, but the problem is we're not talking to people as much to explain that. I think that just to add that that is one of the phenomenons about feeding tubes. You know, you hear about people getting feeding tubes who have dementia and the data, the data in geriatrics show that using a feeding tube in somebody who has dementia and has started to aspirate, which is one of the common sort of end stage neurologic uh, presentations of dementia, people start to aspirate. They don't have control over their, their swallowing mechanism and they start to aspirate. And we get patients sometimes two, three, four aspiration pneumonias where they're in shock and septic and very sick from these pneumonias. And so they eventually, the, the natural tendency, quote, air quotes, is to put a feeding tube into the stomach because, well, it, if you put it through their mouth, they're aspirating. But what people don't understand and don't know and have no way of knowing is that the data show that if you put a feeding tube in and you start to pump someone full of artificial liquid into their stomach, they're even more likely to aspirate. And not only that, but you end up having to tie their hands down because they tend to, especially when they're demented, try to pull at these tubes. Mm. And so it's, a, again, part of this desire to feed. Well, we can't just let her starve, but we're actually ending up causing more harm and suffering. Wow. You know, even if, if, if uh, the patient isn't dying, there seems to be this desire to feed patients anyway, but it's mostly that lime jello stuff that <laughs> I think that would, that would kill you. They must have some hospitals must get some deal on the jello. So they just <laughs> force feed people to eat this thing. Um, uh, but besides, besides sort of the psychological aspect of this need to feed and, and to keep people alive, you write in the book a what you call, or what you might be called, the ICUing of American hospitals. That's, I think that's my <laughs> phrase, not yours. Yeah. You said by 2014, there were 77,000 ICU beds in America's 5,600 hospitals. And in the film, Extremists, you say that you worry about our reliance on machines to keep us alive. Oh, uh, sorry, I'm a uh, quoting this, you worry that that our reliance on machines to keep us alive is causing more suffering rather than less. How how do we go about changing just the technology? Well, I mean, I don't think we want to change the technology per se because you know the technology is can be miraculous when used appropriately and on the right patients. Um, we really have this, you know emerging technologies that keep coming almost by the day, you know, new treatments, new technologies, new types of cancer treatments that really can help certain patients. So I wouldn't necessarily want to change the technologies. I would want us to use them in a more patient-centered way. When we know uh, that when patients have information about their prognosis and their condition and the treatment options, like real information and understand it deeply, they choose to use less technology. And what I think is happening in our ICUs is that we're so in love with our technology and we're so uncomfortable with communicating that we default to using it um, indiscriminately. And we end up with what I call the end of life conveyor belt phenomenon where, you know, even the dying 
are shuttled along this, what I call conveyor belt with, you know, application at different stations of new technologies for whatever organ is starting to fail. Um, And these people who are dying become sort of incrementally encased in technologies until they die. And, And I think that is what I would change is that we need to be communicating much more clearly with patients so that they understand and can make choices, which many would choose not to go down the end of life conveyor belt. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. You talk about that in your book. You call it, uh, you say, in the name of hope, heroism, and the American way, we use these uh, technologies indiscriminately. I I get hope and heroism, but what do you have in mind with the American way? (laughs) You know, it's an interesting, I spend a lot of time uh, speaking with foreign medical graduates, people who have graduated from medical school in other countries who come and work here in America and and become American, but have experiences in other countries. In fact, I'm from Canada. So my father and all of my many, many uh, ancestors and uh, family members who were doctors all trained in Canada. And I am struck by really the difference, almost this this sort of the American quality of prolong life at all costs, that this, this sense that there's a technological imperative, I would almost call it, that, you know, if we have technology, we should use it. Technology is good. Now, granted, we also happen to have a lot more technology than many, many other countries. And most countries in the developing world, we are, we have everything here. This is, you know, as, as, uh, uh, uh Ted Cruz, uh, said the other day when debating the, um, Affordable Care Act with with Bernie Sanders, we you know we have everything you could get the best the best of healthcare the most ICUs and that he sort of equates with being the best care, um, but it's it's true we 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 have the most um, although that's changing with time um, and we use the most and we have this sense of a technological imperative this drive to just keep using it. Um, I once had, a, and you, it's in the book, I once had a conversation with one of my residents um, and we were deliberating. She was the senior resident on the team and we're going back and forth about this patient who was really sick and not doing well. And we all knew on the team that this patient was going to die. But the patient's kidneys and the, the family was demanding that we do everything and keep treating and um, came to the point where the kidneys were starting to fail. And, you know, I was saying to everybody, okay, let's talk about this. You know, we all know that this patient really doesn't have a realistic likelihood of ever getting out of this intensive care unit. The patient is dying. The family is insisting on every treatment. So what do we do about the dialysis? Would we, you know, mention it to the family? Do we, you know, do we just not mention it because we don't think of it as a true therapeutic option for this patient? Um, we think it's going to cause more, more harm than benefit. You know, what do we do? And, and I looked to her and I said, Miriam, what do you think? She's from Pakistan. And she looked at me and kind of smiled. And she said, you know, do you really want to hear what I think? (laughs) And I said, yes, I actually do. And she said, you know, I think it's you Americans make me laugh. You know, in Pakistan, this wouldn't even, even in the fanciest of hospitals where we do have all of these treatments and technologies, we would never 
it's not, it's not an issue about what the patient wants or thinks. It's what we physicians recommend. We're the doctors. We've been the ones who went to medical school. So we don't offer things that are not going to ultimately treat, cure, make things better. We wouldn't even offer it. It wouldn't be, and, and, and the patient and family would trust us to do that. And that's just not the way it is in America. We are very much about, and to my, to my pride, I mean, I feel very proud about this as an American. We really believe in, in, in autonomy and in, in, in access. We don't do a great job of it, but we, we sort of believe in it. And what we've done, I think, incorrectly in America is we've assumed that autonomy, which is a beautiful concept, I think, really equates when it comes to medicine to getting everything. And I think we've distorted that definition of autonomy. Yeah. No, I think I think our attitude is, what do you know? You're only a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to go back and pick up on your phrase, fantasy of perpetual life. And I realize you're only a doctor and you're not a theologian, but I imagine you've had to, you've run into questions about dying and death and what happens afterwards. And I'm, I'm curious in just the few minutes we have left, what do you, what do you tell patients about this? Or, or if you don't say anything, I'm asking you, you know, so what, what do you think about an afterlife? Hmm. That's an excellent question. Um, Time's up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's interesting because, the, and you've actually just asked me a question that I've never had asked of me before. Um, my feelings about the afterlife, which I'm more than happy to tell you, which are very confused and I would say on the on verging on agnostic, are never what comes up in my conversations with patients because what I really care about is what they believe and what they think and what's important to them. And so... I, you know, there are a lot of times when, you know, a person clearly believes in an afterlife, one of my patients or the family members, and they're trying, struggling with decision-making and they truly believe in an afterlife, then that is the reality of that case. There is an afterlife and let's talk about it based on those, um, you know, on those terms. Um, so, and that doesn't necessarily come up with an answer either. I mean, just because someone does or doesn't believe in an afterlife doesn't in and of itself come or, uh, you know, lead you to the answer about whether or not you should continue to use life prolonging technologies on that patient. Because even the most devout um, religious person who believes that God might create, you know, have a miracle in, in his pocket um, or, you know, doesn't necessarily uh, believe or extrapolate that to mean that that you need to keep the patient alive at all costs. You know, they may want, I've, I've said many times to, to religious families, I say, wow, you know, how can we take her off the machine? You know, we're, we're hope, we, we're people who believe in God and we believe in miracles. And I say, you know, and, and, and sometimes this resonates with people. I say, do you think that, that God needs um, a, a little doctor like me to, you know, do anything to, you know, if God's going to do a miracle, don't you think God could do it, whether or not this breathing tube is in? And for a lot of people that resonates. Um, and for some people it absolutely doesn't. If you look in the, in the movie in Extremis, um, the daughter of Selena absolutely felt that there was an equating of believing in God and requiring that you keep all life prolonging treatments on board. So it's very, you know, beliefs about the afterlife, beliefs about God, beliefs in miracles, they don't necessarily predict what someone's going to choose about, you know, for their end oh, of life. No, absolutely. I know lots of people who 
are convinced about uh, that they're going to heaven, but they would do everything in their power in the in a medical setting to avoid going there. So yeah, yeah it's a great place, but I don't really want to go there anytime soon. But what and 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 are you personally though? You're just saying you're sort of agnostic about it. You know, I really do believe on some level that there is a force that comes out of each person that is is in the world uh, and. I, what I see is the people around them and how it's manifested in their lives. When a person has really connected with people in their lives, when they die, I still see that person in the room. I still see that person in, in the, the daughter or the son who I'm talking to. And so in that way, I do believe that there is an afterlife. There's an afterlife in those who you've touched and who you love. Um, is it celestial? I don't, I don't think so, but I, I really don't know. Um, but but I do, I have experienced that feeling of, wow, this person's really in this room. This person's in these people. And that's really special to feel. Okay. Well, that's a great answer. And, and, and just want to underline the fact that you really go with the theology of your patient rather than try to impose your own. That's so right. I, un I understand that. We are really out of time, but I'm going to push this just for one <laughs> last question, because I think people who are listening are going to be really disappointed if I don't ask something like this. And it's probably something you've been asked a million times, but I'm sure that many people listening to the podcast are either dying themselves or caring for loved ones who are dying. If, if you could offer one piece of advice, even though everyone's different, and I, I know that, so I'm putting you on the spot, but if there's mm. one thing that you could say to, to help guide them in the, this end of life, the end of life choices they have to make, knowing that this is, this is the end of the show, what, what would you say? Well, I would say it's actually three things, and I'm gonna say them quickly so that we can get them all in. One is accept that death will happen. Do your work to accept that ultimately we all we will all die. Don't chase this fantasy of perpetual life. The second point is prepare for that in conversations over years with your loved ones and really that are that are have with depth and breadth of preferences and understanding you as a person and understanding what's important to you about the way you live. Because then when they're standing at the bedside and you can't and you're in a coma, they have a gift of a sense of knowledge of you inside of them um, so that they can make the right decisions for you. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, collaborate, support each other, collaborate with your physician. Your physician needs you. Even if your physician doesn't necessarily seem to need you, trust me, your physician needs you. In order to do the right thing by you or your loved one, you need to be taking, you know, getting into the, the passenger seat, but sitting next to the doctor and helping her or him drive because the doctor might be the expert in the, in the disease, but the doctor is not the expert in you. And so you have to help and you have to be an advocate and you have to really want the truth, hear the truth and present information that your doctor may not know and will be important to caring for you. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Beautiful way to end. Thank you for that. My guest today was Dr. Jessica Zitter, a review of her new book, Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life, appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Dr. Zitter's work at jessicazitter.com. Jessica, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Support for today's show comes from the Divine Intelligence Institute, committed to awakening the God within each of us. Rather than a person up in the sky, make God a presence inside of you that you can activate. 
Discover your spiritual IQ at divineintelligenceinstitute.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.